Welcome to The Landscape, your podcast about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss of the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. And I'm Kate Gretzinger coming to you from Bluff, Utah. Today's show is part of our Road to 30 Postcards series, where we highlight local efforts across America to protect landscapes and cultural sites. This postcard is about the Gila Wilderness in southwest New Mexico, which is America's first designated wilderness area. The Gila is coming up on its 100-year anniversary in 2024, so in honor of that and an upcoming book, we are going to talk about what makes the Gila special, as well as the threats it is facing today from military flyovers to attempts to dam the Gila River. But before we do that, let's do the news. Since our last episode aired, there have been some big developments in two stories we've been following for years. The first one is about former President Trump's Interior Secretary, David Bernhardt, who replaced Ryan Zinke in 2019. The House Natural Resources Committee is calling on the Justice Department to investigate and prosecute Bernhardt for a quid pro quo involving Arizona real estate developer Mike Ingram. Back in 2019, Ingram and his business associates made a dozen major donations to the Trump campaign, totaling over $240,000. Right as the Fish and Wildlife Service reversed its long-standing demand for an environmental review of a major housing development Ingram was planning to build along the San Pedro River outside of Tucson. The House Natural Resources Committee investigated the connection between the donations and the reversal and found that there is ample evidence that the donations secured that favorable decision. Now, the Trump Interior Department was rife with conflicts of interest and corruption, of course, so this may not come as a big surprise to folks who've been following it, but this is the first time ever that the House Natural Resources Committee has made a criminal referral to DOJ, so it is a pretty big deal. We will have to wait and see whether the Justice Department accepts the case and pursues criminal charges. Until then, you can catch David Bernhardt on the anti-30x30 speaking circuit, acting as a mouthpiece for fossil fuel companies and real estate developers like Mike Ingram. Okay, that was a lot, but we've actually got one more update for you. This one also comes out of Arizona, where plans for a massive open pit copper mine are now indefinitely on hold, thanks to a federal appeals court ruling. The court found that the company behind the proposed Rosemont copper mine does not have the right to heap rocks and other mining byproducts next to the mine in the Coronado National Forest. That's a very important ruling because it clarifies that while the mining law of 1872 does allow companies to make mining claims on public lands, it does not allow them to indiscriminately pile waste on those lands. But the judges told the Forest Service it can decide whether or not to give the company the right to use additional acreage, quote, in connection with mining operations. So it's not over yet, folks. The big picture here is that this case shows why the mining law of 1872 is so outdated. 150 years ago, Congress couldn't have imagined an open pit mine a mile wide or a waste pile that's even larger than that. They were thinking about prospectors and, you know, little mining operations a couple acres in size. We have long since outgrown the law that still governs hard rock mining in America. So now that there seems to be a consensus emerging that America has to focus on critical minerals like lithium, for example, that we need for batteries and transitioning to a renewable energy economy, the politics might finally be shifting to allow for an update to this 150-year-old law. Congressman Raul Grijalva and Senator Martin Heinrich have both introduced bills to modernize hard rock mining and overhaul this 1872 law, so I suspect this is an issue we will visit again soon here on the podcast. 
Nearly 100 years ago, the Gila Wilderness in New Mexico became America's first designated wilderness area. That centennial is coming up in 2024, and Tory House Press is releasing an anthology, a collection of essays called First and Wildest, The Gila Wilderness at 100. Today, we are joined by two of the voices in that book. Liana Torres was born and raised in New Mexico and worked as a U.S. Fish and Wildlife biologist in the Gila, which she wrote about in her essay. Liana, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Honored to be here. And Joe Sines is an Apache backcountry guide in the Gila. He wrote about his work as well as his tribe's connection to the area in his essay. Thanks for being here with us today, Joe. Thank you. Joe, let's start with you. For someone who has never been or seen the, the Gila wilderness, how would you describe it to someone? We describe it as Ndebena. That's uh, our Apache word to say that uh, that is Apache land, that is uh, a sacred country, and that is a country that um, through the Creator, we were, uh, we are, and we were uh, gifted with a responsibility to take care of this very special area. What is the landscape like uh, the first time you see it? You know, it's a it's a variety, uh, all the way from you know the the Chihuahuan desert, uh, as it is described, uh, to alpine. And so there are so many, um, you know, and description ecozones and uh, uh, habitats that um, uh, you are constantly being educated and you're constantly being um, uh, immersed into its, its cycles and its rhythms and its seasons. And you, you know, you learn that way. And, and that's how you make that connection with this country. Hmm. Liana, um, you write about going to the Gila wilderness as a biologist in your essay. And I'm wondering if you could tell us about the first time you visited and, and what stood out to you. Sure. The first time I was taken into the Gila, well, first of all, being born and raised in in central New Mexico, I had heard of the Gila. Um, my family were farmers, ranchers in the middle of Rio Grande Valley, but again, I had I had heard of this space, this place called the Gila, and my first time being introduced to the Gila was through work, and what I remember is first off the long drive down Interstate 25 and then turning off two-lane highway, again, a long highway through desert, through roaming hills, coming into the Mimbres Valley and seeing the vegetation change and get higher, and then coming into the valley, headed into the mountains. And so... Really, for me, it was an experience all in itself, just coming into that place, seeing it for myself. Um, and then obviously through work, we 
set up camp at a, a place called the Heart Bar, which was, I think is still run by the New Mexico State Game and Fish. And then from that spot, we packed in horses and mules to do the work um, deep into the wilderness, um, deep into the mountains. And what I remember is just the piñons, the ponderosas, um, the streams, the deep valleys, um, just just very, just an epic, epic landscape. Joe, one of the observations in your essay uh, is the, the name itself, Gila Wilderness, which is uh, a name assigned to it uh, by Aldo Leopold and the, the U.S. government uh, when it was designated nearly 100 years ago. You note that instead of that, you prefer calling it uh, the Apache Preserve and that that would very much be a starting point to reclaiming Apache values and ideology. Can, can you talk a bit more about the ancestral connections to this land and and how how you would like to see those reflected in the next century of the wilderness? Um, to um, you know, to an Apache perspective, as I mentioned before, how we were given that responsibility, give it, gifted that responsibility, to care for this country. You know, we have to encourage people to change dialogue when it's being referred to this country. Um, uh, changing the dialogue uh, will further, uh, I think, make this country unique. And even though as an ancestral or, uh, you know, our connection to this country through our Apache history, and the continued connection through our culture because everything related to our culture was about caring for the country. And as we always say, that's what made this country so valuable to uh, when the Spanish came in and, and when the Mexican government tried to take over this country and then with the U.S. was that the way that we managed this country was how they found it and everything was pristine. Uh, everything was intact, the the grasses, the timbers, the waters, the animal, the air, that was our priority. And so it made that land, it made this land uh, extremely valuable to people that saw it as a way to extract resources and to take something from it. And as Apaches, we understand that uh, this is our birthplace um, you know, uh, we refer to it as Ndebena. Uh I've often asked elders, you know, to share with us because of how the genocide uh, went against us here and removed us from this country and we lost our contact with it. Uh, I still would ask elders to see if they could remember anything about this country. And one of the things I had interest was the name of itself. And recently, I had an elder, uh, Chiricahua Warm Springs elder, uh, Claudine Sines, that lives up in Mescalero. She uh, shared with me that she has been really working to see how she can make that connection with the name. And the closest thing that they could identify with was a term called Huthli, which means where everything originates, where everything starts. 
and and so that's that was one of the insights into how that particular country is referred to and and how it's seen and so how we would like to continue that and encourage people encourage the young people to move forward in their protection of this country because as apaches we can't do it alone uh we want you know others to also um uh, take that responsibility and take it to heart is i think uh making a standard of this country uh you know identifying this country as we are going to let this land take care of itself um we need to reduce that idea that we can just extract resources and and use it for as i think was a a a false identification of this country that it was through the forest service that it was a multiple use country and it's not uh it's not intended to be hunted it's not intended to be grazed it's not necessarily intended to be fished uh we should make this country an example of what wild land really is the amount of resources that go into firefighting when they protect those cabins that are just you know contemporary and they spend all that resource that resource could go somewhere else if it's really a wilderness let's make it a wilderness and if it can't be a wilderness then maybe we need to move to preserve it and and save it uh the amount of of use that's happening in the Gila wilderness right now is saddening it's astounding it's alarming and there needs to be a shift in dialogue how we address this country and moving forward how we're going to continue to protect it so it stays as pristine as we can um uh, you know we know the history of this country we were here we we saw it how it was impacted and even today i can see the the scars i can see the 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 materials the items everything that was left behind from 100 years ago uh the history here is not very long um our connection for me immediately is three generations that i can identify and have direct firsthand stories Lena, I'm curious as a scientist and a New Mexican, how do you view the term wilderness um and how do you think of the Gila as a wilderness or do you think of it as a wilderness? Hmm. That's tough. Um because obviously the definition of wilderness um is so expansive. and i see the term the idea the concept of wilderness has a lot to do with perspective as well right as we've heard mr mr signs talk about about his perspective and his view of wilderness um you know i can only speak for myself and my experience and as a native nuevo mexicana who has seen change even within my own community of Tomé of uh of an area just south of Albuquerque i see how there has just been major changes to our landscape our economics our cultura here 
Um, and to me, wilderness represents that space where there are opportunities for wildness in various forms. Um, So again, I think for me, wilderness is about perspective, but it's also about the realities we face here in New Mexico. More people coming in, more people wanting to build their dream houses and their dream cabins. So I know for me, again, as a native Nueva Mexicana, I'm following policy and legislature that our leaders are bringing to the table to protect our areas, to keep them accessible when necessary. Um, So it's complex. It's layered and it's complex, this idea of wilderness and it's a hard question, and I, I still try to define it for myself even today. To, to Joy, Joe's point about wildfire and that we need to let wildfire be more wild, particularly in wilderness areas, from your perspective, your time with fish and wildlife, how, how challenging is that to, to get that sort of mindset uh, among folks who say or look at a fire and think, oh my gosh, we have to put that out. And obviously there was a, a century of fire suppression for basically the the entire length of the, the, the wilderness that, that has, has existed as designated wilderness. Um, is there more that needs to be done to change that mindset around fire, that it is not bad, that it is, it is natural? And, and how big a challenge is that? Oh, I think it's going to be a, it's our new big challenge in the West, right? Fires and water. Um, As Mr. Sines mentioned in his essay in the book, however, fire is big business. Fire is big business. There's a lot of money, a lot of agencies, and a lot of urgency, right? When fires are roaring, absolutely, you feel like you want to stop it. Um, So yeah, I think it's changing that narrative of fires are needed, but also the reality that conditions are different, that there has been fire suppressed for so many years, that now when fires occur, they're significantly more intense. Um, So it's going to, it is a challenge to our current Western reality. Um, Obviously, I am not a fire expert. All I am is a is a Western citizen, right? Wondering what what next year, what the next ten years is going to bring for my son, for the next generation. Um, yeah, just so many complex issues in our West right now. Um, Joe, I want to ask you about something you mentioned when we talked earlier. Um, I think you said that your property is a migration corridor for wildlife. Um, And Liana, you touched on some of the development pressures in New Mexico. Um, Joe, could you just tell us a little bit about the wildlife that you see in the wilderness and and how having this connected landscape is important? I live um, um, in in a community called Arenas Valley, which is uh, in between Silver City and Santa Clara. 
um, we are fortunate enough to be within, you know, uh, less than a quarter mile from a trailhead into the Gila National Forest. One of the changes that I've seen uh, in this little area is that in reality, that particular trailhead and entrance into that part of the Gila was actually called the Fort Baird Elk Refuge uh, until probably 10 years ago when the now called uh, Dragonfly Trailhead uh, has basically turned that area into a uh, heavily used recreational site. Um, and so I've been a witness to the scattering and the uh, pressures on the wildlife in this area. And I'm, you know, fortunate enough that I have an arroyo close to my home on my property. And it's, uh, you know, seasonal dry uh, quite a bit of the time. But uh, it's quickly evident that the wildlife use it like a highway. And so I've, I've dedicated my property because it runs in such a way that uh, it allows that. So I've, you know, d decided to commit my property to a way that there is no disturbance at night. Uh, I don't have fences that are going to keep animals out. Animals can go through my fences. And so uh, I've been, you know, lucky enough to see, you know, herds of deer, elk, uh, you know, the, all the, the native animals that are in this area. Uh, I've witnessed, you know, pack of coyotes taken down, you know, deer, uh, just the natural rhythms and natural cycles going on. But I've also realized that in the growth, uh, as, Le as Leanne mentioned, that in the growth and the pressures in these areas, um, I think there just needs to be more done to encourage people that when we're this close to this type of terrain, this kind of country, the, the Gila, the, the refuge, that we keep in mind those type of animals that they need to move. They, they need to get from one place to another to either find forage, to get water, um, you know, and, and allow them that space to do that. Um, I know that people, there's a lot of people that have moved out here that just fear the dark. Uh, they have dogs, they have cats, and they allow them to roam. And we forget that you know, in the in the crepuscular hours, in the late hours, uh, that time should belong to those wild animals that are passing through. Um, and, and I think it's just a, a, a an encouragement for more people to be more aware of their surrounding and realize that we're not the only ones living here. And uh, we need to make that space for these animals that are getting further and further crunched and pushed and wedged that we as property owners... Um, think about that and create that space and that time and that avenue for these animals to move around. And I, I think that'd be a great lesson to, to, to push. Um, and so, but yeah, we, we certainly promote that our, that our four legged brothers, our winged animals, uh, the, the lizard, the snakes, they all have a place here and we need to make that for them too. Let me ask you both then about the, the threats to this ecosystem, the pressure coming, uh, as you've both touched on, from uh, from encroaching human development, uh, are, are is there a need for more protections? Is there a need for for changes in management? Uh, what are what are the, the the next steps 
to protect this this landscape for for another hundred or thousand years. And I, I will start start with Joe on that one, but I want to hear hear Liana as well. Well, when I hear that question, I have to go way back in time, and and even for my own lifetime, I have to think of of when we talk about these pressures, when we talk about these incursions, is that uh, this has been going on for a long time. The pressure here, uh, I think it's because of the dialogue, again, the way we speak about this country. And so the pressures have you know, started from way back, uh, including the trapping of beaver, including uh, you know, the mining, including, you know, all these uses that have happened, even to a certain extent, uh, what I do, recreation, I, I consider horses extremely impactful in the wilderness. But I, I work really hard to make my horses uh, as least, the least that we can do of an impact. And so the the thought of, of what we can do, these pressures, are even today uh, pretty heavy. I mean, we're constantly involved here in this in this little area, uh, protecting the Gila River, trying to, to stop it from being dammed. Uh, the, the jet flyovers uh, that, that we're in the process of, of trying to brace for to see what they decide to do about this, even though we can consistently say, don't do it here. And so it, it's it's a, a an immense magnitude of this pressure on this country, and I just don't understand that the agencies that are the most should be the most committed are in actually in a position that they need to to do what needs to be done to protect this country are the ones that are the most silent. Uh, you know, the the I was astounded how the national park and the national forest just sort of didn't even want to get involved with the jet flyovers uh and it was it would be a huge impact to this area these these proposed jet flyovers that are still continuing um the the education that's going on to the young folks uh that are starting to use the wilderness uh makes me wonder sometimes where are they getting their information i mean the the amount of human activity and the human, the the trash, the the you know, the, as I mentioned before, there's been times when I've come into hunting camps that are literally uh, a biohazard um, because of the way the they're practicing, uh, how they operate in the wilderness, and so the, there is a constant amount of pressure. And so my hope and our hope through our traditional and cultural ties here is that we just keep the dialogue going that we need to uh, be involved we need to understand what what people are proposing to do in this country and again it's that idea to uh, think a little bit about different uh, way to handle this country that maybe it's not intended to graze to mine to uh, you know do all these uses that leave a lot of stuff behind and and heavily impact uh, one of, just as an example, one of the things I'm noticing in the wilderness is that I understand that this is a wilderness. It's through a wilderness act. So there is a law that says that you're not supposed to have man-made structures in the wilderness. And uh, ironically, there seems to be more and more all the time. Uh, you know, the, there's, there's, uh, I constantly see human presence, uh, you know, and, and it, 
didn't used to necessarily be that way. But again, as, as um, there was, it was also mentioned by Leanne, the, the amount of people that are coming into this area. So it's becoming even more critical that we do something soon um, because there is a lot more pressure. And, and I'm sure with the way that things are in this time, uh, I hear a lot of people wanting to move to this area. Um, you know, it's it, the people come and tour here and see this great country and how, you know, we still have a little bit of that, the quiet, we still have a little bit of that. I can drink the river water, I can drink the creek water, I can sleep on the ground. Um, we still have those luxuries and um, we need to hang on to them or we lose them here. I just don't see it happening anywhere else. <laughs> Liana, same question to you. Are we at risk of loving this wilderness to death? <laughs> um, I don't think there's such thing as too much love. Um, mm -hmm. You know, going back to your, your question or notion about protection, um, I think my stance is I have to always acknowledge, always that my current self, I'm part of the problem. I am part of the problem. I use up resources. I'm privileged, right? So I have to acknowledge that side of the coin. On the other side of the coin, I have to acknowledge that major protection, serious protection at this point, it's only going to come through law, through legislation, through big, big ticket items. One example um, I think mentioned already by Mr. Sines was, was protect, protecting the water in the Gila. Um, and there's a long history about people trying to dam, right? Dam up the upper waters. So I think one of the big ways, hopefully that area will be protected soon is for the legislation that Senator Heinrich um, has proposed, that that gets through. Um, but again, for me, protection is about perspective. Um, but I also see it comes back to a matter of personal stories, right? Sometimes I feel I can't do much. I don't live in the Gila. I can't, I don't have that day-to-day -day interaction that some people have, like, like Mr. Sines. But what I can do is advocate from my personal experience, my own stories of what I experienced in the Gila and why it deserves to be protected and pass that on to my primos, my familia, my, my legislators, right? It has to start at the grassroot level. Um, so yeah, again, just so much complexity. Um, so much complexity. Liana, you mentioned that you'll be visiting the Gila wilderness later this spring with your son. Um, and prior to this, you've only ever visited it for work. Um, what are you looking forward to about that experience? And um, what will you be sharing with him about the wilderness? Well, again, I have to approach that area with absolute respect because as we've been talking about the pressures, the right, I have to acknowledge that I'm going there as a visitor. Um, 
And I have to respect and honor that. So there's that side of the coin, but there's also that spark of, of excitement. I don't want us to lose that spark of, of the amazing landscapes we have in our state, amazing places. Um, and so I'm excited to show him that place, to have him be there. Um, and obviously it's not going to be as dramatic as when I was working and hiking it or packing in 20 miles. But for me, it's that simple start of taking my boy to the stream, having his, having him put his hand in the water, if there's still water, right? Because of the drought. Um, but there's so much in experience. There's so much in actually experiencing a place. Um, and again, that's a privilege that I have. And that's a privilege that I want to pass on and also maintain. Um, so we'll see. I'm excited. Joe, when you were invited to contribute to this uh, collection of essays, where, where did your mind go in terms of what you wanted to impart from your years in there? And, and did that process change your thinking about the Gila wilderness at all? Um, you know, it, it, it goes back to, um, I think a story of, of, uh, the way that I was, um, uh, reacted to in college. Um, I, I attended the university of Alaska at Fairbanks. Um, I was in a natural resource, uh, management, uh, degree program. And, um, I had a trails class and, during this, uh, the, uh, toward the end of this trails class, uh, the professor announced that he was going to give us a test, and that this test was uh, a test that uh, typically, possibly just in Alaska, maybe because I'd never heard of it before, but that this test sort of gave an indication to the agencies that would be interested in hiring you an idea of where you would best be placed. Uh, whether it was rural, uh, urban, city, you know, wilderness, remote. And so, you know, by that time, I, I was uh, a guide up in the, uh, up in the Arctic. Uh, I'd been guiding quite a long time. And, uh, but at that particular time, I was up in the Arctic guiding in the Central Brooks Range, which was uh, wildlands at that time in before it became the gates of the Arctic National Park. And so they gave us this test and I took the test, the whole class took the test and the professor took it. And two weeks later he came back and he kind of told us that he got the results and he went around the class and told, you know, every person, you know, hey, uh, you'd be great here in this location, um, you know, remote office, uh, something like that. And as he went through the class telling everybody where they would best be placed, he finally came to me and um, he looked at the results he looked up at me and then kind of giggled and he said, Hey Joe, uh, this uh, results say that you would be best placed in a Winnebago in a parking lot, drinking a beer. And the friends that knew what I do, uh, they just started kind of giggling in the back and you know, it became kind of a joke because all of a sudden I'm this person that, you know, has no reason to be in the wilderness. I should be in the city. 
And so I went up and talked to the professor and I found out that, uh, you know, it's an extremely biased test. Uh, and I realized that the questions that it would ask would be, what do you think about camps? And in my mind, I would go to traditional subsistence, hunting camps, fishing camps that, you know, that's how native people use the wilderness for survival, for, you know, uh, nutrition. And that camps under those conditions were okay uh, because it is a subsistence camps. Well, apparently because of those types of answers and response that as humans, we do belong in this world we do belong in the wilderness um, that uh, apparently through these results that i couldn't live without people i couldn't live without facilities i couldn't live without you know uh, modern modern uh, facilities so uh, that that was a, a shock to me that that this society has gone so far as to exclude itself i mean we're almost like we're our worst enemies and um but that can be changed, you know. We can, and I applaud Leanne that you know. Please take your, take your relative, your son that you're taking to the wilderness, so he makes that connection. That's you know, we all need to make that connection. Um, but we be, need to be responsible. We need to make sure we don't leave anything behind. Uh, no tracks, no trash, you know. Uh, but that wilderness, that those environments were given to us by the Creator. We need to appreciate them. We need to see them. We need to experience them. Um, so yeah, uh, I, you know, I think that would be great. So, and again, it's 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 that idea that we as humans are much more involved in this than we really give our you know give ourselves credit for. That we can make a difference. We just need to be careful, and we need to be observant, and we need to listen to each other. And we need to discuss these things because um, if we lose it, it'll be gone forever. Take it from an Apache. Hmm. Liana, in your essay, you focus on the story of Geronimo, um, who I believe was an Apache warrior um, in the, he lived in the Gila wilderness area. Of course, it wasn't a wilderness then. Um or it was, but it wasn't a designated wilderness. How did you decide to write about that theme in your essay? And how did you approach writing about this place? <laughs> um, well, for me, honestly, Kate, it wasn't a question. And to this day, I'm still surprised about how many people associate the Gila wilderness with Leopold, Aldo Leopold rather than the Apache people, one of them being Heronimo. Um, it's, surprising. it's surprising to me. And to me, honestly, before I had gone to the Gila, I had done a little bit of, you know, just broad research. And so when I was in that place, in that space, deep in the wilderness, I mean, packing in, taken the trails so far from civilization. I mean, I could sense, I could sense that, that presence of spirit of the people that had been in that landscape long before I had. And I'm not saying that from a sentimental or nostalgic stance. I felt it in my bones. And so to me, 
That's why the Gila still stands out as such a powerful place to me. Not because Leopold did all the things he did to get it to that stance of wilderness, but something much deeper. Um, and I think that says a lot also to just the space that is New Mexico and the Southwest is we have much deeper history and connections than our current narrative tells us. Um, and so this is not to say I'm not, I'm not discounting Leopold. I don't want to say that. I'm just saying that, you know, Mr. Sines mentioned about changing the narrative. Um, I also think about that as well. You know, what is the narrative we've been told? What is the new narrative that I'm going to bring to the next generation, to my own son? Those are the questions that I think about um, at night. Um, so that was sort of a long answer. But again, to me, it was it was no question that that land was Apache land long before it was anybody else's. I think that is the perfect place to leave this. Uh, Liana Torres, Joe Sines, uh, both contributors uh, to the essay collection, First and Wildest, The Gila Wilderness at 100, uh, which is being released this month from uh, Tory House Press. Thank you both so much for your insights, uh, for your words here. Uh, I certainly have learned uh, a whole lot and have a whole lot more to think about the next time I'm wandering through that part of New Mexico. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. It was an honor. <laughs> so that's a look back at the history of the Gila wilderness, but what does the future hold, especially for the greater Gila region that surrounds the wilderness area? Wild Earth Guardians has been working on that for years now. So we called up the group's Southwest Conservation Manager, Maddie Carey, to tell us all about it. Maddie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Maddie, can you give us a, a more detailed geographic description of what you mean when Wild Earth Guardians talks about the greater Gila region? Absolutely. And I'll first and foremost own that it's a little bit vague on purpose because one of the key priorities for us in the greater Gila has been the recovery of the Mexican gray wolf. And as their range expands, some of the tools that we've used to protect them in what was initially just a small part of the Gila National Forest, we're now trying to apply across a broader landscape that includes things beyond national forest lands and beyond the Gila National Forest. So I'll start first with human reference landmarks to help people. So we're going to go with interstates. So roughly I-25 on the east, I-40 on the north, I-17 on the west, and I-10 on the south. Now that's broader than what we generally talk about. Um, but if you think about sort of the mountain mountainous areas in there, once you get up out of the playas down by I-10, up out of the direct Rio Grande floodplain, um, and down south a little bit towards the end of the Colorado Plateau. That's what we're talking about. So kind of broadly speaking, Albuquerque, Flagstaff, Sedona, Tucson, and call that 
what do you call that on the New Mexico side on the south? Um, Carlsbad is. Yeah, not quite all the way to in. Las Cruces, but Deming is right there um, on okay. I 10. So broadly, that area. And I think one reason why we paint with such a broad brush is the greater Gila is actually a place where you have a lot of distinct eco regions come together. You have the Chihuahuan and Sonoran deserts. You have the Rio Grande Rift Valley and the southern end of the Rocky Mountains, and you have the Colorado Plateau. And then actually a globally unique ecoregion, which is called the Arizona-New Mexico Mountains, which is really that um, ponderosa pine forest that goes from the Black Range over to about Sedona um, at high elevations that then includes some mixed conifer and alpine up above 10,000 feet. So when you look at the 30 by 30 maps, you can actually pop out and the scientific map that has sort of underpinned 30 by 30 initiatives, you can actually pop out the New Mexico, Arizona mountain region, which is smaller than what we call the greater Gila, because we want to catch those sort of dynamic intersections where you have the desert running up the Membrace and Gila River valleys into the big mountains. And then when that smooths out onto the Colorado plateau, and you're seeing big antelope herds, um, you know, working on those margins is sort of key to um, some of the work that we do in Envision. Hmm. Maddie, what are some of the threats to that area? Why are you focusing on protecting it? So I think, you know, to go high level, the biggest threat is climate change. Um, and that's a little bit of a cop out because that's basically the biggest threat everywhere. But it's the headwaters of the Gila River the, and the Little Colorado River um, are the two big drainages, so two large tributaries. And any upper watershed activity um, has these sort of net downstream effects, whether that's grazing, wildfire, road building, um, dam building, all those things. Um, so there's this sort of amorphous climate change threat, which in this part of the world really means that it's going to get drier and hotter. And that has these ecosystem-wide impacts on plant and animal species, um, aridity, water availability, and... Um, migration and home ranges. Um, so it's going to be a dynamic place going forward, but it's also going to become a refuge because we do have some high elevation peaks. Uh, then there's a bunch of sort of diverse, more acute human threats. There's been a longstanding proposal to dam the Gila River, which is um, sort of has been defeated for the most part in its current iteration by a really strong locally led coalition but there was just a hydropower um, dam proposal on the San Francisco, just over the Arizona border, which has also gone away. Um, but there is increased interest in sort of damming these upper tributaries, either to try and capture um, some small amounts of water in reservoirs or um, capture and divert water or generate power. Uh, we've seen two proposals to increase the number of military overflights of the area. Um, the borderlands, the frontera is incredibly heavily militarized, both um, as part of, you know, the notion of border security, but also there's just a lot of Air Force bases in southern New Mexico and southern Arizona. That's a place where um, when we were looking for places to put big, loud planes with not a lot of people, we put them there. Um, and so there's going to be consistent pressure to the airspace. Um one of the issues that's been the hardest to grapple with is um, there's a fair amount of wood theft of alligator juniper 
that's tied to a failure of the Forest Service to adequately implement the travel management decision. So even though we have these Mm. big roadless areas, I was just down there last week meeting with a rancher and grazing permittee who's really upset at all the illegal road building that's being done, um, primarily to access some of these alligator junipers, which are then logged and sold for wood or furniture. Um, But there's also, you know, the hunting community. um, I'm going to paint with a broad brush. The sportsman's community tends to... um, have members that are not the best informed about what roads are actually open or closed. And so a big thing that guardians and our partners are grappling with is how to actually get the forest service to implement the travel management decision. Um, Cause we have a good decision. There was a lawsuit, the good decision prevailed and most of the roads that were closed are still physically there on the landscape. And so you're relying on people's individual ability to a, have a map with them, B, look at the map when they're driving along and C, make the right decision. And so we really need to get to a place where the agency is resourced and prioritizing physically reducing the road network. So in terms of what those next steps are, how do you protect it? it sounds like some of what you're talking about is is just enforcing rules and protections in place right now. Obviously you do have the wilderness area, but as far as the other, the greater region, what does it mean to add more protections? What are the tools available to add those protections? Uh, Is this legislation? Is this Antiquities Act? Is this, this just working with agencies within the designations that are there right now? That is the question of the day. And I think it really depends on what the issue is, like grappling with this airspace issue and the fact it's probably going to be a continued issue. And you only have one wilderness area in the country, Boundary Waters, where the airspace was closed as part of the legislation. Um, It's an interesting question of engaging the Air Force and saying, is this a legislative fix we're going to have to make or can we come to an administrative agreement? You know, Antiquities Act is great because I think even though it can be done executively, it offers the most flexibility to say, okay, the local community really wants a shooting range here and we really want to manage these lands as roadless. Um, I think they get a bad rap as being like extreme federal overreach. And I actually think that it's one of the better collaborative tools. Um And then, right, like some of it is the agencies aren't resourced to implement some of their already good, strong protections. And so when we think about the greater Gila and Guardians thinks about what does it mean to protect it? What does it mean that we have a million acres of roadless, of inventoried uh, roadless areas that are wilderness quality lands that could be protected um, as wilderness it's, it's going to take a mosaic to sort of put together, you know, it's the right next 100 years for this landscape. Um, and I didn't, you know, I have this whole other wor- world that I work in, which is um, voluntary grazing permit mm-hmm. retirement with ranchers, um, where the Gila has really been the focal point for that. And it's been amazing because we got into it for the wolves and a lot of the ranchers are interested because it's too dry. It's too rugged. Um, and the return of high frequency, low intensity fire to the landscape has made it a challenge to manage their cows, um, in the way that grazing historically worked there when you had an agency that was, um, 
suppressing a lot of these natural processes. So I think in terms of what's next, it's really saying, okay, we have these threats of climate change in dams and poorly managed motorized recreation um, and military overflights. And, you know, people are going to light fires and we are going to have these really large scale fires. And what do we need to do to manage that? And really putting together a coalition of local local groups, national policy experts and local communities and saying, what's the right mix of resourcing the agencies to implement current decisions, identifying any legislative policy solutions we need to go after, and um, then looking at if the executive branch has a role in um, protecting particularly um, the cultural sites that are important to both contemporary people like Joe um, and there's 17 tribes and pueblos that are consulted on any federal project on the Gila National Forest. So lots of contemporary interest, but also the Mimbres cultural world, which has sites across the Gila National Forest that um, exist in a fairly unprotected state. Maddie, I understand there's a legislative proposal championed by um, Senators Heinrich and Lujan from New Mexico to designate the Gila River as a wild and scenic river. Um What's the status of that and how would would that help at all to protect some of the um, areas you're talking about? Uh, That's a really important bill that would do a lot to help protect sort of the the management footprint that it's looking at, which is um, essentially your river corridors. And the current status is that we are awaiting the U.S. Congress to do its thing and work a little bit. Um, so that we see a package come together um, that has interests from across the country and across um, congressional districts and across the aisle, uh, whether people want a new post office or it's something else that makes sense that's vaguely in the purview of the Energy and Natural Resources Committee. So there's a package, um, which is generally how those things work. And I think that bill will have a really significant impact on elevating how important the Gila and San Francisco watersheds are um, as wildlife habitat, um, as recreational resources, but also, um, you know, the city of Phoenix gets a huge percentage of its water out of uh, the Gila River. And so the stewardship of the federal lands in the upper Gila watershed and the upper San Francisco watershed have a really significant impact on what the future of that city will look like in terms of water quantity and quality. And I think that always is like, oh, the Colorado River, and we think the big Colorado River, and we think Lake Mead. Uh, but the way that the New Mexico communities come together to steward our lands actually will have a significant impact on Um, what the future of our neighbors in Arizona looks like. And I think that's a conversation Guardians is starting to drive is really this water quality, water quantity through good stewardship. A whole lot of moving pieces there. I'm sure we will be back down that way soon, looking at all these various proposals and uh, and ways to protect this ecosystem. So uh, Maddie Carey with Wild Earth Guardians, thank you so much for just helping us scratch the surface of, of what's going on there. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. And um, if people have questions, they're always welcome to track me down um, on twitter.com 
or on my website and um, the Guardian's website. And I love to chat about all these things. We kicked the show off today with what could be described as good news, but here's a little more. The Interior Department has announced a list of 125 ecosystem restoration projects that will receive $68 million of funding from the bipartisan infrastructure law. Some cool projects set to receive funding include $42,000 to eradicate tamarisk in Colorado, $100,000 to adjust mine hazards at Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument in Arizona, and $500,000 to plant native seedlings in the sagebrush steppe throughout the West. We'll link to a High Country News article with the full list and more details in the show notes. Also, if you are interested in reading the book that we talked about, First and Wildest, The Gila Wilderness at 100, you can go buy a copy starting right now. There's also a book launch event on Thursday, May 19th in Albuquerque, where Liana Torres will be discussing the importance of the Gila in past and future conservation efforts. We will link to info on that, as well as a book trailer in the show notes. I don't know why books get trailers like movies do, but I guess that is a thing now. Please get off my lawn. That's it for our show today, guys. If you have thoughts, questions, comments, heck, even complaints, send them to podcast at westernpriorities.org. And if you want to check out more local conservation stories, visit roadto30.org slash postcards. Until then, I'm Kate Gretzinger. And I'm Aaron Weiss. From us and everyone at the Center for Western Priorities, thanks to all of our guests today, and thank you for listening to The Landscape. <laughs> <laughs>